and kind of trying to decide where to jump in on this account. I particularly am wanting to focus on verse 30, but to get a little bit of the context here, why don't we begin reading in verse 22. So Acts chapter 16, begin reading in verse 22. This is speaking about Paul and Silas here. It says, the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. So again, speaking of Paul and Silas here. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Well, about, I guess, three or four weeks ago, I was visiting with someone um, and kind of shared a little bit of some of my own testimony with them. And in the conversation, it kind of got me to thinking a little bit about some of the struggles that I had as a young person being raised in a Christian home, um, making a profession at a very young age, and then proceeding to have doubts about my salvation for many, many years after. And one of the things that I feel like looking back is that in my mind, things became overly complex. This simple message of the gospel had become very complex in my mind. And what I would like to do today, it's a very simple, very simple message, um, but really my burden is for the young people, but I believe that this will be a help, Lord willing, to everyone here, but to talk about the simplicity of the gospel. And as a bit of an illustration here, I've brought a few books. One is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, some 1,200 pages of it. The other, Robert Raymond's Systematic Theology. I borrowed this one from Andrew. I didn't look at the page count on it, but it's a solid 1,000, I'd say. Uh, 1,200 on this one as well. And I can tell you, these are small print, no pictures, deep reading. These are complex books. And I was thinking about this. Theology is complex. It really is. Countless books have been written on the topic of theology and large volumes. I mean, these are not little nighttime reading books. They're deep. Um, but it's no wonder 
theology, if you break it down, theos, God, and ology, the study of, it's the study of God. God is infinite. So, of course, it's going to be very deep. And there's going to be volumes. You know, John even said at the end of his gospel, if you were to write about everything that Jesus did and said, not even the world could contain all the books that would be written. And certainly we're going to be spending all of eternity learning more and more and more about God. So, yes, theology is deep, and at times it can seem overwhelmingly complex. But what I'm wanting to contrast here, the gospel is not that way. The gospel is not a complex um, system that we can't fully understand. The gospel is very simple. Well, before we can go any further, we need to understand what is the gospel. And again, just breaking this down, gospel means simply good news. So then, of course, that brings up the question, what is the good news? And I was looking, um, did a little word search on this. The word gospel is used right around 100 times, depending on which translation you're looking at, right around 100 times in the New Testament. That word, that specific word, gospel, and I think I looked up the King James, New American Standard, the ESV, and the NIV. I think I also looked up the New King James. All of those, anywhere from 95 up to about 108 times, the word gospel is used. But it's never used, the term gospel is never used in the Old Testament. So what is the gospel? What is this good news that is proclaimed here in the New Testament? And I'm going to read several passages. You don't have to turn to these if you don't want to. But each one kind of begins to uncover one layer a little bit deeper and deeper as to what is the gospel. And then the final passage, I think, lays it out most clearly for us. So in Acts chapter 15, verse 7... It says this, and I'm not giving any context to these. I'm just jumping in and and looking at these verses here. So Acts chapter 15, verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And just one thing I want to highlight from this. The gospel is something that must be heard and believed. You see it right here. By my mouth, the Gentiles would hear hear the word of the gospel and believe. So those two things, hearing and believing, go with the gospel. And then a couple chapters later in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, this is Paul here. He says, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So here's another layer that we can uncover. The gospel is about the grace, the mercy of God. Grace being unmerited favor, 
God's favor being shown to us through the gospel. And then a very familiar one, actually two verses we're going to look at here in Romans chapter 1. Paul, again, writing to the Romans, says, For God, whom I serve... I'm sorry, I didn't give you the verse number. Uh, Romans 1, verse 9. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. So here, Paul specifically says, the gospel of his Son... God's Son. In other words, the gospel is about Jesus. Again, one more layer. We're going deeper here. The gospel is about Jesus. And then uh, skip down to verse 16 of Romans 1. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So here Paul is saying, don't be ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save salvation through the gospel, through the gospel. And then the final one that I want to read to you is from 1 Corinthians. We're going to, there's four verses here in this one, 1 Corinthians 15. And I believe that this is possibly the clearest, most concise but clear definitions that Paul gives, at least in his writing, of the gospel. What is the gospel? He's going to tell us here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. Stop right there. He's just, in a sense, repeating what we looked at previously. You heard, you received, and you are saved. By what? By this gospel that he preached. But then going on, he says, uh, By which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here's how he he begins to unpack the gospel. What is it? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So we see here the simplicity of the message of the gospel here in Paul's definition here in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. That's it. Paul narrows it down very clearly here to this is the core of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again. That's the message of the gospel. Now, clearly, there's much that can be unpacked from that, but the basic message of the gospel is very simple. That's it, right there in 1 Corinthians 15. But how is this message of the gospel applied to my life? How does one become a receiver of the blessings of the gospel? Or in other words, how does the gospel 
save me? How am I saved? Getting back to what we started with there in Acts, where the jailer asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? We've begun anyway here to explain what the gospel is, but we still haven't begun to answer what must I do to be saved. So, is this where a long list of things that I must do begins to unfold? You know, we said the message of the gospel is very simple, but has it become complex when I have to start figuring out how it applies to my life? Well, here's an example of what I'm talking about there. How does one, if I asked you this question, how does one become a millionaire? Simple answer. Get a million dollars. That's it. That's how you become a millionaire. But then when you start thinking about, but how do I get a million dollars? Well, that's where it gets a little complex. You have Realistically, probably one in a million chance of getting a million dollars. Or it's going to take a really, really, really long time. In other words, the message is simple, but how you apply it is really complex. That is not the case with the gospel. The message of the gospel is very simple, and the way in which it's applied to our lives is also very simple. So let's go back to Acts 16, where we started. And I'm going to begin with this passage, and we're going to look at three totals. So this passage plus two others that I want to show where it clearly explains to us how is this gospel applied to my life? How am I saved by this gospel? So um, let's... Pick up reading in Acts 16, verse 29, uh, just before or as the jailer comes in here. So Acts 16, verse 29. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So here, Paul answers his, what I believe to be probably the most important question in all of the Bible. What must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas answer plainly and simply, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. So he narrows it down to one thing, believe. Believe on Jesus. And this is repeated over and over in the Bible. And I'm going to read you two other verses where we see this. John 3.16, very familiar passage. Most of you kids probably have this memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. So how is a person saved? How do we get eternal life? Jesus says plainly here, whoever believes in Jesus will have that, will have eternal life. And then another uh, passage from Acts. 
This time it's Philip speaking with the Ethiopian eunuch. And you remember this story. The Philip was walking along this road, and he meets um, this eunuch that is in his chariot reading from Isaiah. And he's confused. He doesn't understand. Who is the writer talking about here? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And Philip comes up into the chariot and begins to explain to him about Isaiah 53. We're going to read some of this later on. Um, But he explains, begins preaching Jesus to him, just expounding from Isaiah 53. This is about Jesus. And uh, beginning in verse 36. So this is all the way at the end of the account. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, that is Isaiah 53, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, and and then it goes on, and, and he ends up being baptized there. So here we have three passages all saying the same thing. The way in which a person is saved is by believing in Jesus, believing in Jesus. Now, one little thing to mention here from this passage in Acts. As a child, I was extremely uh, nervous, uncomfortable, um, even scared about sharing my testimony. And uh, I think a big part of it was I had a completely wrong idea of what sharing a testimony was. I thought that sharing a testimony was telling all the bad things that you had done and the terrible sin that you had been caught in and how God miraculously delivered you from that. And the worse off you were, the better it it showed of Christ's mercy and grace. And so if you didn't have a whole lot of deep sins to confess, your testimony seemed kind of weak. That's essentially what I thought. Um... My dad had shared his testimony many times, and it's a really incredible story. But I was saved in a much different way. And when I would think about sharing that, it's like, I I don't have anything to say. But in reality, what is a testimony? You're testifying to something. You're testifying that Jesus died for your sins. That's it. That's what a testimony is. And look at this Ethiopian eunuch's testimony. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's his testimony. That's it. He's just proclaiming, I believe in Jesus, and he's baptized. It's, it doesn't have to be anything overly complex. It's, are you trusting in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? If so, you have a testimony. That's it. Well, that's a little side note, but I want to go on here 
because I don't really want, I don't want to leave any stone unturned, so to speak, because I'm trying to um, define for you what it means to be a Christian. How is a person saved? So we've said that the message of the gospel is simple, and we've said that the way in which it's applied, the way in which we're saved is simple. You must believe, but we now need to define what does it mean to believe? We know that to believe is more than just mental consent. We all know a lot of mental facts from history, but that is very different from belief and faith. Um, now, just a little side note here. Andrew has brought this up many times that faith and belief are the same thing. Faith being the noun and believing being the verb. And I like his illustration that he gives, that hammer. What is a hammer? Well, it's a noun, it's an object, but it's also a verb. You hammer with a hammer. So it shows you the object, the noun, but it also shows you the action, the verb, what you do with it. But in English... Believe and faith are defined, are used in two different ways. You've got the verb, believe, and then you have the noun, a different word, being faith. But we need to think of them as being one, belief and faith. Well, bo- biblical faith, to believe in Jesus, is much more than agreeing to the facts of who Jesus is and what he has done. There are many, many people who believe that there was a man named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. They don't disagree with that. There is a historical figure named Jesus, and he taught good things. There are countless people. In fact, I would say the vast majority of humanity agrees that there was a man named Jesus but that doesn't mean that they believe in Jesus. They just agree that there was a Jesus. Biblical faith involves putting all our trust in him and in his finished work. So a little analogy example here. Imagine there is a deep canyon with sharp rocks hundreds of feet below And above this canyon is a bridge. Now, if you were there, you could see this bridge, and you could give mental consent to the fact of its its existence. Or maybe you heard about the bridge, you know, read a story about the bridge, or heard me tell about the bridge, and you would agree to the truth of its existence. But in order for you to have faith, in the bridge, you must put your trust in the bridge. And so you can see where this is getting a little more difficult. It's no longer just agreeing that there is a bridge, but now you're beginning to put your trust in the bridge. And how do you demonstrate trust in the bridge? You have to walk out onto the bridge. So is it complete faith in the bridge if you are leaning with all your weight on the ground and you're just sticking one foot out and barely touching it on the bridge, is that faith in the bridge? No, clearly not. You're resting all your weight 
on the ground and just putting one toe out on the bridge. Is it complete faith in the bridge if you're on the bridge, but you're clinging to a rope that's tied back on the ground? You know, I'm out here, all my weight is on the bridge, but I'm clinging to this rope. No, that's not faith in the bridge. Complete faith in the bridge means you put all your weight on the bridge and you let go of everything else. You can't be holding on to anything and saying, I have complete faith in this bridge. You have to let go of everything else. So complete faith in Christ means you are putting all your trust in him and in what he has done for you on the cross. Not Christ plus my good works. I read my Bible every morning. I go to church. I was raised in a Christian home. My parents are Christians. Christ plus my Christian parents. That's not it. Not Christ plus my baptism. I was baptized when I was however old. No, that's not it. Not Christ plus anything else. Complete faith in Christ means Christ and Christ alone. Um, I read a book here just recently. The title of it is a little misleading, but I like the book. The title of the book is Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, How to Know for Sure You Are Saved. Again, the title somewhat misleading. Content of the book, very good. He's coming from kind of a, a background where when you're unsure of if you're a Christian, you just keep asking Jesus into your heart. Every Sunday when they have an altar call, you go forward and ask Jesus into your heart. Or each summer at summer camp, you ask Jesus into your heart. Um, that's the background that he was coming from, and that's, I think, why he titled the book. But if you get past the title of the book, the content is very good. I don't know anything about the author, but uh, I really appreciate some of what he had to say here. So one of the quotes from the book is, he says this, Salvation comes not because you prayed a prayer correctly, but because you have leaned the hopes of your soul on the finished work of Christ. You've leaned the hopes of your soul on the finished work of Christ. Another way you could think of this, you know, he uses the example of leaning. You could also think of it as hanging. Like if you were going to tie a rope to a high tree branch and hang from that rope, you know, jump up and hold on to that rope, you're hanging on that. You're, all, you're clinging to that rope, and it's tied to the branch. If the branch falls, you fall. You've hung all your weight on that branch. Well, that's the way we are to be with Christ. Salvation comes when we do that, when we hang all our weight on the finished work of Christ. And there are so many songs that we sing that bring out this thought, and Andy uh, played several of them this morning. The first one I was thinking about, in Christ alone my hope is found. Christ alone, not Christ plus something else. In Christ alone 
my hope is found. And then the other one I was thinking about, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. In other words, Jesus. That's where my hope is. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's what these songwriters are telling us. They're telling us what the gospel is. Believe in Jesus alone, not Jesus plus anything else. Well, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, there are two things involved. First, you must believe in who Jesus is. And then second, you must believe in what Jesus has done. So who Jesus is and what he has done. And this ties in, I think, very well with what Andrew has been talking about, God and the gospel. God and the gospel. God, who is Jesus and the gospel, what has Jesus done? That right there. We need to be clear on these two questions. Who is Jesus and what has he done? That is biblical Christianity. If you get either one of those wrong, you're not a Christian. You must be clear on those two things. Who is Jesus and what has he done? So the first one, who is Jesus? And again, if we get this question wrong, we have already stepped away from biblical Christianity into heresy. If we get it wrong about who Jesus is, what does the Bible say about this question? Who is Jesus? Well, for that, we're going to turn to Matthew 16, because Jesus asked his disciples, This very question, who do people say that I am? So Matthew chapter 16, and begin reading in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So stop right here. The people seem to be, at least the ones who are responding to this question, seem to be pretty clear. This is an unusual man. Jesus was not your normal guy. Everyone recognized there's something special about him. And some were saying, John the Baptist, you know, the guy who was baptizing. Others were saying, Elijah. Well, Elijah had been taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire. So they're saying, Elijah has come back down from heaven and is saying these wonderful things. So in in a sense, that's a compliment when someone says, you're that guy who went up to heaven in a chariot. You know, that's, 
that's a, a compliment that they're giving to him, but they, it's the wrong answer, but they're at least recognizing there's something special about him. And then others, uh, Jeremiah or one of the prophets, one of the prophets who's died and is in heaven, has now come back to life and is, you know, saying, going about healing people. But verse 15, Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So who is Jesus? Jesus is not just a good preacher, although he was the best preacher that ever lived. Jesus is not just a prophet like Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the others, although he was a prophet, but he is not just a prophet. Jesus is not just a good man to be followed. You know, he said some good things. We ought to listen to what he said and try and follow his teaching. That's true, but that's not just who Jesus was. Jesus is the very Son of God. Look at what Simon Peter says here. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter got this one right. You know, there's a lot of times where Peter did some things that kind of like shake your head, no, Peter, you don't understand. This one he got right. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Now, notice also in this passage that Jesus says Peter's answer was not because someone else taught him that answer. He says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. In other words, you didn't learn this in school. Your parents didn't teach you this and you caught on. No, Peter knew this because God had revealed it to him, and he believed it by faith. He, God revealed it to him, and he believed it, and therefore was able to testify of it. And then later, throughout the New Testament, we have examples like the Ethiopian eunuch, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. There you have it, testifying to the same thing. Well, second, what has Jesus done? Well, we already answered this briefly in Paul's definition of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ Jesus died for our sins was buried and rose again. But let's consider it a little deeper. So, the gospel. Jesus came as a man. God himself came as a man in the person of Jesus and lived a perfectly sinless life. Everything that the law demanded, Jesus did perfectly. Didn't miss anything. Fulfilled it all. And then he, was, he died on the cross. He was killed on the cross. Now it's interesting here how much the New Testament 
stresses and emphasizes he died and was buried and rose again. Why this whole thing about he was buried? In other words, this wasn't just like a partial dying, you know, just kind of like a symbolic dying. No, he really died. The man Jesus no longer had a heartbeat. For three days, he was dead. Okay, so this was a real physical death. And he was buried, laid in a tomb for three days. And during that time, or on on the cross rather, it was more than just physical dying that Jesus was suffering under. And this is where, if you were there looking at it, you may not have understood it at this time. But the New Testament explains to us what happened on the cross besides physical death. And this is the message of the cross, the message of the gospel. The sins of the world, the sins of us, were placed upon Jesus, the sinless one, the one who had not done anything wrong. Our sins were placed upon him, and God's righteous, holy wrath was poured out on Jesus the one who had done nothing wrong, but who took the sins upon himself. God's wrath was poured out upon him, and therefore there's now no more wrath, because God took it, or Jesus took it all. 1 Peter 2 says this, uh, verse 24, And he himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Peter is repeating what was said earlier in Isaiah 53. So I'm going to read some of that if you want to turn there. Isaiah 53. This is amazing because this is a prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus came. And still is one of the clearest descriptions of what happened on the cross. Isaiah 53, I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, he himself being Jesus, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The iniquity, that's sin. God is caused the sin of all of us to fall on Jesus. And then skip down to verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. 
In other words, when Jesus was on the cross and he bore our sins, he purchased our salvation. No longer is there the wrath of God bearing down on us. Instead, we're forgiven. We have peace with God. By, uh, let's see, what does it say? By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. We're declared righteous in God's eyes because of what Jesus has done. And it makes me think of, uh, I believe it's in the second verse of the song, In Christ Alone. It says this, And on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Every sin was placed upon Christ, and the wrath of God was poured out upon him. And it's because of that now that I can live. So when we talk about believing in Jesus, this is what we're talking about. Believing in who Jesus is and what he has done for us on the cross. Much more than just believing that there was a Jesus, but that you begin to rest your hopes, of the hopes of your soul, on Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. Well, how is the gospel applied or received in our life? By believing in Jesus, or faith in Jesus. But there is another element of the gospel that needs to be mentioned, and that is repentance, because that's also something that the Bible says a lot about, repentance. But I think we'll see that repentance is not actually separate from faith, but rather tied with faith. To repent, the word repent means to turn or to change one's mind, to change your mind. So in repentance, I'm going to highlight some some thoughts here about this idea of turning. In repentance, we are turning from something to something. We're turning from sin to Christ. We're turning away from our own works, what we think we've done that's good. We're turning away from trusting in that, and we're turning to God. We're turning to Christ, the finished work of Christ. But then also, repentance is changing our mind. We are changing our minds about God. You know, the lost person is lost because they refuse to acknowledge God as being God. That's ultimately what everyone who goes to hell is going to be in hell because they refuse to submit themselves to God. They refuse to acknowledge God as being in charge. They want to maintain control of their own life, and therefore it takes them all the way to their destruction. But a Christian, repentance is changing our minds about God. Where once our mind was set upon doing our own thing and living our life however we wanted, in repentance we change our mind and submit ourselves under God's authority. We begin to say, God, 
you're in control now. I am no longer in control. I give myself to you. Repentance is about removing ourselves from the throne of our heart and submitting ourselves to God's authority in every area of my life. Not just how I get to heaven, but every area of my life. Lord, you are now in control. And I believe that we see here the connection with repentance and faith. Because if I'm turning away from something and turning to something else, I have to put my faith in what I'm turning to. I'm turning away from my good works and turning to the finished work of Christ. In other words, I'm letting go of the rope. Remember talking about that, walking out onto the bridge? Letting go of the rope, and I'm standing now fully on the bridge, which is Christ. Nothing else. Letting go of it all, I'm changing my mind, I'm turning and going to Christ. You cannot put your faith and trust in Christ without repenting, changing your mind, turning from self and sin to Christ. And on the flip side, you can't truly repent without having faith in Christ. The two go together, repentance and faith. They must go together. Well, in conclusion here, I'm almost finished. Although the message of the gospel is simple, the urgency, the command of the gospel cannot be overlooked or downplayed. There is an imperative here. You must believe. And I just want to highlight some of these verses here that talk about this. In John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus is saying if you don't believe that he is the Son of God, you will die in your sins. There's an imperative there. You must believe. And then I already read John 3.16, but a few verses later, verse 36, he says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So he kind of interchanges two things here. He says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but then he says, he who does not obey the Son. So which is it, Jesus? Belief or obedience? Yes, (laughs) because... What is one of the commands? Belief. If you won't obey the very first command in the Christian life, which is belief, then you're walking in disobedience and the wrath of God abides on you. If you won't obey that and believe in Jesus. And then the final one that I'll I'll mention here, John 14. Again, very familiar passage. John 14, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Jesus speaking here, he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. 
If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. And then Thomas, in verse 5, asks a question, an honest question. He says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So notice the exclusiveness of the gospel message. There's not many ways to the Father. There's not many ways you can become a Christian. There's not many ways that one can go to heaven, and this just happens to be one of the ways. No. There is only one way. And Jesus plainly says which way that is. No one comes to the Father but through me. The only ones in heaven are going to be those who have come to faith in Christ. They've come to the Father through Jesus. They've been reconciled to the Father through the work of Jesus. No other way. You cannot be saved apart from believing in Jesus. So we see here the necessity of believing the gospel. You cannot be saved apart from obeying this command, believe in Jesus. Well, I want to finish with a thought here for those who have put their trust in Jesus um, and maybe are struggling with assurance. The gospel is not just for the lost. And that's something we need to remember over and over again. The gospel is not just for the lost sinner. The gospel is for everyone, including the Christian. And at times I feel like saying the gospel is especially for the believing Christian. We don't believe in Jesus at the beginning of our Christian life and then move on to more important and deeper things. That is not it at all. Quite the opposite. We begin the Christian life by believing in Jesus and we continue every day to put our hope and our trust in what he has done. That is what it is to be a Christian, to continue to put your trust in Jesus. Um, One more quote I wanted to read here from this book uh, from J.D. Greer. He says, salvation is not a prayer you pray in a one-time ceremony and then move on from. Salvation is a posture of repentance and faith that you begin in a moment and maintain for the rest of your life. And I like that idea of a posture of faith. In other words, it's not just something you verbalize. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus, but the posture of faith means it's worked out in your life in every way. You're continuing to submit yourself to who God is and the authority he has in your life, and you're saying, I trust him. I trust what he's done. I believe in him. So it's verbal, yes, but it's also lived out. It's a posture 
of repentance and faith that begins in a moment. There is a a moment when it begins. You may not know exactly when that moment is, but it began in a moment, but it continues every day. So what about if a Christian feels doubts about their salvation? And I can testify to this. It's very common among Christians. I've dealt with this time and time again. To have seasons of doubts, or maybe your whole Christian life has been spent wondering if you're really saved. Well, here's something I want to point out, and remember this. The remedy for a doubting Christian and the remedy for an unbeliever is exactly the same thing. Look to Christ and put your trust in what he did for you on the cross. Are you unsure if you're a Christian? You don't need to figure that out before you decide which path to take. If you're unsure where you're at, the answer's the same. Look to Jesus and put your trust in him. The answer is the exact same. When doubts arise, what are we to do? We are to look back. Not look back to a time when we made a decision to follow Christ. Not look back to when we first remember sensing our sin and confessing it to the Lord. In other words, don't look to the beginning of your Bible and say, now what date did I write in there? That's not what we're looking back to. We look back to something much more solid, something much more objective. We look back to what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. What did he mean when he said, it is finished? He meant that he had taken all the wrath of God upon himself and there was no wrath left. But what about, because this is real, what about when we sin again for the hundredth or thousandth time? Isn't God angry with our sin? Isn't that true? God's angry with our sin? Yes, he is angry with our sin. Or better put, he was angry with our sin. So angry, in fact, that he poured out his wrath upon Jesus when he was on the cross. Do you want to know what the wrath of God against sin looks like? Look at the cross. Look at Jesus there and the wrath that was poured out upon him. That's how much God hates sin. So yes, your sin is wicked and evil, but God poured out his wrath upon Jesus. And because of that, when Jesus said, it is finished, there was no more wrath left. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do we understand what this means? No condemnation, no more wrath, no more anger of God against us in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ Jesus, putting their trust in him. And then in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that, having peace with God. Instead of feeling like you're alienated from God, God doesn't love me because of my sin. When we come to Jesus in faith, 
we have peace with God. The peace of God now rests upon us because of what Jesus has done, what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. Another favorite song of mine um, is Before the Throne of God Above. And in the second verse, it says this, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, and we can all testify to that being the case in our life, upwards I look, am I skipping something there? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upwards I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, My sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's the gospel message, and that's where every person here, lost or saved, needs to put their hope, hang their hopes on that, that Jesus died for your sins. If you're looking to him, then you are part of that blessed group that now can experience peace with God. But if you're looking to anything else and hanging your hopes on anything other than Christ, then you are out of peace with God. The wrath of God uh, rests upon you. But for the believer, we can hang our hopes, our every hope upon Jesus and have peace with God. Well, why don't we pray here in closing? Father, we thank you for such a great salvation. Lord, we thank you for providing this way whereby we can be saved from our sins. Lord, we're thankful that it's not dependent upon a long list of things that we must do to accomplish. And at the end, we're wondering whether or not we accomplished enough but rather, Lord, that we can look to Jesus, put our hope and our trust in him, knowing that he did enough, that he did it all perfectly in our place. Lord, help us to put our trust in you. Lord, help us to not begin to um, tack something else on and have it be Jesus plus uh, something that we've done. Lord, help us to rest completely upon you. Thank you for Jesus and for what he did for us on the cross. Lord, help us to live our lives in complete submission to him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.